welcome to the first ever episode of Farmerama. I'm Nigel and here with... I'm Joe. And I'm Abby. We're here to bring you stories from farmers and growers around the UK. We want to get into the nitty gritty of producing things like soil experiments, choosing different seed varieties, sustainable or maybe resilient food systems. Just generally sharing cool, honest projects and ideas going on in food and farming around the UK and beyond. And we'd like you all to be involved. We hope to speak to a lot of you in the coming months and provide a place where people involved in farming on whatever scale can share stories, hear about latest developments and bring this community closer together. So maybe a little help to introduce us because who are we talking about um, farming? My experience of farming was delivered at this first Farmer Mama meeting where we've just eaten some uh, rocket that I've grown. So I'm very new to this. Welcome to the fold. Welcome to the fold. Abby, <laughs> what's your experience? Um, well, my family are farmers, uh, but in Chile, South America, and I've been working with the community farmers there to build tools for them, with them, and generally, from a tech perspective, seeing how tech and tools can empower smaller scale farmers to really prosper. And Nigel, you're, you're a serious farmer. You're a... <laughs> I don't know about that, Joe. I'm, um, I grew up on a small family farm in East Sussex, so I guess I kind of grew up knowing, I didn't really know about, you know, um, anything other than farming, I suppose, sort of being um, raised on goat's milk and, um, <laughs> and taught to, to, you know, herd cows and sheep at, at a very early age. So yeah, I, I, I have some experience, but it's only more recently, the last like couple of years, after about 10 years or so in London, that I've actually sort of returned to my roots as it were. Yeah, and I'm sort of now farming with my parents and hoping to sort of inject some energy and, and new ideas into UK agriculture. Last year, Nigel embarked on an epic road trip across the country and we're going to hear several reports from this trip over the next few episodes. Nigel, perhaps you can tell us about why you wanted to do this trip. I was like living in London and basically interviewing mainly sort of urban growers and farmers and I was really keen to kind of maybe get a bit more of a sense of, of what's happening um, outside of London. So I uh, embarked on this sort of six week road trip on my scooter, Veronica, that was her name, um, or is her name, she's still around. And it was it was very much, I sort of basically put it out there in, in, on sort of social media sort of. Twitter, Facebook, and um, I didn't really know exactly who I, who I was going to see, so it was very um, free, you know, sort of organic in, in terms of um, the roots. But I, I uh... oh, oh, hold up, hold up, hold up. <laughs> very organic in terms of the roots. roots I think yeah. we need to be a bit careful with okay. our. Bonds. <laughs> Let's see how we go. The first place we're going to travel with you. Yep. On Veronica is a buffalo farm. That's, that's it, yeah, Broughton um, Water Buffalo Farm, which was a farm I visited whilst travelling through Hampshire. And I met a really interesting farmer there, and he showed me around his, um, his kind of quite extensive grazing system. And, and just the fact that he had water buffalo isn't something you see on an everyday farm. I don't know if it's scary. I mean, I think, you know, they cer they're certainly a, a bit more menacing than your average, I don't know, native Sussex or Herefords. So, um, so yeah, certainly, I mean, I was a slightly, yeah, I mean, not alarmed, but uh, wary of them, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I mean, at the same time, very much, they're very captivated because they're, they're sort of quite beautiful. You know, they're very, uh, you know, they have 
a certain charm. I are think. they majestic? They are quite majestic, actually. Mm. Yeah. They also make a, a really unusual sound I've never heard. I mean, like... The, what, go on, what's the don't, sound? Don't make the sound. They're like a, almost That's like true. a a croaking sound or something like that. Like, like a frog. Yeah, like almost like a almost like a frog, which I found really like interesting. And talking to the farmer, he was he was just so in tune with the, the whole sort of ecosystem. He kind of strip grazing where the, he lets an awful lot of his cattle into quite a small space, and they trample down the grass. And then, you know, well, they eat some of it and they trample a lot of it down, which returns a lot of organic matter back into the soil. His grandfather um, farmed in, in, in a more sort of traditional or, you know, conventional way, whereas he's an entirely organic farmer in that sense. Fantastic. Well, let's, let's meet these majestic beasts. We, um took it over and reverted it back to a natural grassland farming system. Yeah. And we got in the water buffalo, this Indian water buffalo, like they've got in uh, Italy for mozzarella cheese. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's a few producers in this country, mostly concentrating on milk production, going yeah. into the Asian community and that. Okay. And we've got, um, we basically rent for meat. Okay. And we sell all the meat that they produce locally at farmers markets mm-hmm. and through pubs and restaurants and catering events we do as well. Okay. What we do is we we put all the herd into one group. Mm-hmm. So it's about well most of it anyway, about two hundred animals in one group and we put them onto the fresh paddocks each day. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is something they're calling mob grazing. Right. Um, and it's a way of you get all the animals into a small area and they um, go in and they graze it off nice and evenly, they dung all over it and then um, they move back and they move on and they go on to the next bit of ground and so it then gets a real long rest of you know, two yeah. or three months. And what we're finding is this is kind of starting to, it's feeding the soil and it's kicking the soil into life and it's um, gradually, very, very slowly, but we're getting a kind of upturn in, in productivity as we start to see the you know, effects of it. Yeah. It, do you bring them inside or they, they stay outdoors or, or, or winter as well? No, no, they come in. Oh, they, they yeah, do come into the building. Okay, got you. We, build, we like to build the shed every so often just to show the local farming community how successful our operation is. Okay. You know, they're, they're glad to come in, but glad to go back out again. Yeah. So it works okay. A week or two ago, we went along to the Canalside Community Gardens in Leamington Spa for the CSA Network Gathering. And one or two conversations got us thinking. Before we get there, CSA means Community Supported Agriculture. Nigel, what exactly is this? In most traditional farming systems, agriculture, the the risk lies more or less solely with the farmer. What community supported agriculture is all about is basically sharing that risk. So essentially they they work in harmony, the farmer and the consumer of that product work together. So essentially the consumer pays a monthly price or an annual price um, for the harvest and um, will basically reap the rewards of that harvest or indeed um, 
also if the the crop you know fails or doesn't do as as well they they also don't then then get as much um uh, food as well and i suppose this has the like the also added effect of sort of bringing people a lot closer to the process of their food like you can be you're aware of what's going uh, on you're personally involved and you know generally when csas are set up and and they they find local members um the whole point is a, is about sort of educating the members about that food growing process and there was a great community feel at this event wasn't there there were there were babies and old people and farmers all of all ages yeah yeah, yeah definitely yeah. and well we went for the party which was really fun Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> the Kaylee, yeah the world dancing and it was a really great atmosphere um and what actually from the day what kind of excited me most was the idea of well, for one, people coming and having the opportunity to help out with the farming a few days a year, you know, that's part of, often a lot of CSAs, that's part of the commitment. And then also the idea that you could get more involved with what foods you actually want to be planted um, and the taste of the foods. So like, say you really like the taste of stripy beetroot or something, you have the opportunity to be like, well, let's try planting this at this time and you know, getting that kind of really from the moment you're tasting something right back to the moment it's planted and really connecting that up. I like that kind of two-way um, discussion going on between the people eating and the people growing. But we met some really committed people. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. there's, a real, there's a real movement happening, I think. You know, it seems a lot of... Um, a lot of young voices, well, as Abby mentioned, like a mixture of ages, and everyone seemed very um, upbeat about the future, which was great. It was great. Um, and I think we're going to hear from a few of those people now. Maybe start with one of the less young voices, but I'm young in spirit. Robert Simpson, who is a founding member of the CSA Network in the UK. You know, you've got to re think about something which is very banal, like growing food, in this new kind of way that it's, you know, actually central and it's, you know, like you're saying, this the connection with the kitchen and the cooking and the growing. Right? So everything is understood in terms of relationships all the time. And that is not the mindset of many or most farmers, you know, they've got it all boxed up. What came up a lot on the day was like, what's the difference between a box scheme and a CSA? And I think that is something that for a lot of people maybe isn't clear on, you know, first sight. But we really got when we were there at the, the gathering was that actually this is really something more than just getting vegetable boxes delivered. You're really part of a community and you're really learning and there's engagement in both directions. And that's really exciting. Now, one thing, one of the stranger things we heard about on the day was also a way of getting the community involved, and it was a, a chicken speakeasy. So sort of just mull that over in your mind a minute and, and think what that might be. And then Nigel's going to tell us. So, so I think, I think the, the chicken speakeasy was essentially an a, a, um, unofficial uh, sort of abattoir. I can't sell you yeah. a no. processed chicken. That would be no. illi very illegal, very naughty. But I could sell you a live chicken. Yes. So here you go. Here's your yeah, chicken. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're like, what the hell do I do with this? Yeah. Yeah. One hand on the head and one yeah. hand. Yeah. And then we will have like a plucking session. Yeah. The whole the whole point here is that they're not actually slaughtering these animals illegally. They're they're organising parties where people can come round and they can legally slaughter their own animals. 
there's also a really clear, as far as I could tell, sense of wanting to become part of a system that in some ways seemed to be almost that this system was too big and the CSA network was so small that even they had lots of good ideas which really did fit in with lots of the aims of national policy, they're kind of a little bit too small to make that Mm -hmm. noise loud enough. The Mm -hmm. the system couldn't think in units as small as Mm -hmm. one grower on a field. Yeah, it was really interesting actually hearing hearing about how efficient the CSA systems were, comparing those to the food systems we have in place, and especially with recent announcements about the importance of reducing food waste in the UK, it was really interesting to hear that actually a CSA system has the lowest food waste. Roughly 25% of what supermarkets sell is wasted. That's a really significant figure because... That's, tw- that's also 25% of their profits. So waste is absolutely fundamental to the supermarket system. Because if they didn't have... If we, and that's just our waste, not the, not the waste before. That's just what we waste at home. And that's where we buy 25%, if we're buying from supermarkets, more than we need. Which is perfect for a supermarket because that's, that's extra 25%. That's, and that's a massive amount of sale. And of course, the whole remit of a supermarket is sell it cheap, sell lots of it and sell it cheap. They, they work on quite pretty small margins, you know, percent, very small margins. It's just, it's just about bulk. So the system is pretty crap and highly, highly inefficient. Whereas here, what have we got? So the study I did here was, was, was uh, one bit was very easy. To, to measure what waste was was left in the field, well, it, there wasn't any. <laughs> uh, the, 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 if you've been in, in there, there is a, there's a, a, a bin in the corner, and that is the only thing. So, the, the, and so occasionally we have a real glut, and sometimes beetroots are a bit hard to move. Uh, even I find that we, uh, all, all the beaches we get sometimes. Uh, there's just a tiny, a tiny, tiny about point. Zero two percent of what's produced is wasted here. It's just meaningless. That was Nigel talking to us about efficiency and food waste. Um, any closing comments on CSAs? Because I feel it's some, it's a a movement, an idea which we're going to be returning to. Yeah, and I I think um it has huge potential. It just really needs you know more farmers to actually um, learn about the, you know the potential of setting them up. And working with the local community, so I, I just think it's it's one of those um, systems. It's a really good idea, and when it you know it just really needs more people to to adopt the CSA system. Um, and I think it has huge potential to really help feed and teach communities about where their food comes from. Our friend Zara Rahman has done a historical and political examination of seeds in her podcast Collusion. She kindly let us use a short segment for Farmerama. We wanted to bring this in because many people were really excited, especially in the sustainable agriculture kind of section, that the European Union dropped recent proposed regulations on seed varieties. Um, And Zara shows that the power of seeds is nothing new. Biopiracy is a way to describe the appropriation or use of indigenous forms of knowledge by commercial actors. 
In practice, this could be, for example, scientists or researchers coming to an area, like indigenous communities in Mexico, to learn about their medicines and compounds, then taking samples of this back to their research institutions and eventually getting a patent on them. A form of biopiracy is bioprospecting, when researchers find compounds, plants or medicines used by indigenous people and patent it without recognising that the knowledge is neither new nor invented by the patenter. Somewhat incredibly, this patent might later be used against the community from whom the knowledge was first found, and usually the rights to the commercial profits from this kind of technology are denied to the indigenous community. One of the first, most well-known cases of biopiracy was the Maya International Cooperative Biodiversity Group. It began as an alliance between the University of Georgia in the US, a small Welsh pharmaceutical group, and an NGO intended to represent the indigenous Maya of Chiapas, as well as various US federal agencies. The aim of the project was to promote drug discovery from natural sources, biodiversity conservation, and sustainable economic growth in developing countries. But even though the project had a code of ethics and the two main researchers had years of experience in working with communities in the region, lots of concerns were raised by people within the community. The major issue here was the idea of gaining prior informed consent from those communities. According to Sebastian Luna, an indigenous spokesperson from the council, the project is a robbery of traditional indigenous knowledge and resources with the sole purpose of producing pharmaceuticals that will not benefit the communities that have managed and nurtured these resources for thousands of years. Luna explains in a written statement how the project aimed explicitly at privatizing and commercializing knowledge that up until that point had always been collectively owned. And this move contradicted strongly with the culture and traditions of the communities involved. It was also difficult given that some individual members of the community took the decision to actually collaborate with the researchers in return for a relatively small amount of money, but one that made a big difference to their personal economic situations, which were very difficult at the time. started the Traditional Knowledge Digital Library Project, an Indian digital knowledge repository of the traditional knowledge, especially about medicinal plants and formulations used in Indian systems of medicine. It was set up in 2001 and seeks to classify and keep a public record of medicines that have been used for years in India. It protects the traditional knowledge of the country from exploitation by biopiracy and unethical patents, and it also makes access to the database much easier than before. It essentially started as a response to biopiracy and patent claims. For example, in the past, patents have been granted on turmeric and even basmati rice. And one of the main obstacles around this issue was that the patent examiners couldn't search through traditional knowledge to see if it had already existed prior to the patent being brought about. In part, this was because of a language barrier. Traditional Indian knowledge might exist in any local language, such as Sanskrit, Urdu, Tamil, whereas the patent examiners, likely in these cases coming from the US, were unlikely to be able to understand these languages. Within the traditional knowledge digital library, that information is now available in English, French, Spanish, German and Japanese, meaning that hopefully it's more likely to be used and referred to by patent examiners.
It gives modern names to medicines and aims to bridge the gap between traditional knowledge and modern knowledges. On their website, they've been keeping a record of patents coming largely from the US, Canada and Europe that have been withdrawn thanks to reference to the traditional knowledge digital library. And up till now, they've classified about 200,000 different formulations. Another response that can be seen among community activists is the establishment of community seed banks aimed at protecting indigenous seeds, helping farmers return to organic farming and reducing dependency upon multinational corporations. So you heard from Zara, her thoughts, but what can we do here in the UK? Well, it turns out people are thinking about just this. I spoke to Ben Raskin of the Soil Association about a new project he's been working on. We did a, an open pollinated um, seed variety trial where we got a whole load of varieties that weren't available organically, tested them in organic systems uh, and then there were a couple that did really well so we went on to second year and tried those two varieties in more places, more holdings. But it then got me thinking about the fact that a lot of what this is about is just information sharing um, and there's no independent testing of organic varieties now in the UK, there used to be. They cut the funding about eight years ago. Uh, so, so how to, and it's come up a few times today in discussions, how do you know what variety of what to grow, you know, and what suits here might not suit down the road, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So, so what I've started, uh, an online seed survey. So people basically put in very basic, because the idea is keeping it easy so that people do it, uh, basic information about how varieties perform. So you can literally put in one variety and it would take about a minute or you can send me a spreadsheet of your whole cropping thing and I'll input it. Uh, and then in theory this will become a, an online searchable map um, or by location, by soil type, so heavy, medium or light uh, and and then sort of whether it's being grown inside or outside. So there's a few bits of information that you need to put in uh, that you can then say, right, I want to find out carrot varieties that do really well on heavy soil in Lancashire you zoom in and people have put it on uh, and there'll be a public and a, and a commercial um, version both in the same format so you can merge the data but also separatable so that if you're a commercial grower and you really just want commercial varieties yeah. then you can do it like that It's early days but he's keen to expand this project so if you want to get involved then post on our Facebook page or Twitter and we can add you to the list of trialists. The more we speak to farmers, the more we hear about the new ways they are using technology to make their farm work. We think this is particularly exciting for smaller scale farmers, and we've already talked to a few of them who've told us about the technologies that are keeping them producing. You'll hear from them all in the coming episodes. But for now, our new friend Robert Simpson from the CSA Network is also keen on sharing the experimentation in the growing world. I'm convinced that this is the, what's happening. The big environment is so ignorant and so unsympathetic. The chances of, of these experiments, you know, having a long life in that environment is kind of a, you know, you're against the grain. But the value is that we've trialled all sorts of experiences and experiments. They talk about ecology and redundancy. So redundancy, that's okay. So what we have to do is to make sure we've got opportunity to do these experiments. 
And so, yes, some will be successful and some will not be successful, you know. That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. But what is key to that is this thing, you know, we've got all the technology. For God's sake, let's record what's going on because the moment will come when that unsympathetic and ignorant environment in which all this experimentation is happening will implode on itself or explode on itself. You know, there'll be some ghastly non-linear, i.e. systemic, if there is a system out there, um, a catastrophe of some kind. <laughs> Quite serious there. And um, luckily, Farmarama are here to, to do some of that recording. So hopefully we can, we can save future generations or current generations ourselves from... Implosion. Quite. Or explosion. <laughs> Who knows? That, that's interesting. And another thing which was really clear from talking to Robert was... Sometimes when we talk about technology, people are assuming new technology. Yep. But Robert really talked to us about rediscovering old and forgotten bits of technology from the past and, and seeing how we might be able to make use of that again. Or yep. even simply just making sure we don't forget. Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that everyone kind of thinks technology means digital in this day and age, but that's just a very recent understanding of the word technology um, and that we really need to have a much broader understanding of what technology means it's almost like closer to tools than it is to digital well in my view seeing history as a um, resource to re-envisage the future is and you know that the now is just you know between what was and what's to come (laughs) and well, what do you want to come? You know, <laughs> so you look at the past. You look. You learn about the past in order to re- to 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 um, resource your envisioning of the future. And but what if, what do you think is the role of technology to play in the future? Because obviously that wasn't necessarily in the past. New technologies. Well, huh. I uh, well, you asking me something which is preoccupying me a lot at the moment because. You know, technological innovation is subject to a law of diminishing returns. You know, it's always the argument that that we can grow by substitution. New technology will find us a new substitute for petroleum, for instance. Um, Problem-solving and using technological fixes as part of the problem-solving process is, um, is is subject to this law. It will... It's not ultimately going to be the to be a fix that there is whether there is a fix as such and you know so it's quite because I've been reading quite a bit about collapse theory and that that's um, you know I think now I'm not comfortable about talking about sustainability because I think um, probably we're much better to use the word resilience really uh, because resilience is part of the ecological cycle you know there was this famous psychologist, uh, uh, ecologist called um, Buzz Hollings who did this work on American pine forests. I can't remember where, on the East Coast somewhere. And did all the mathematical modelling and discovered that the, that the climax, forest climax uh, stage of development is very, very brittle and unstable and it collapses. So there's climax and collapse and then regeneration and the whole cycle starts again. So there was also a social scientist, a paleoanthropologist, who did work in the 90s on social collapse, and he worked out this idea that 
the pursuit of sustainability is a driver of collapse of complex societies, which is a pretty scary thought to get your head around because, you know, uh, we've listened to the talk about sustainability for so long, but it isn't an ecological category. You know, there's always this moving through, and so resilience is a much more a much more serviceable idea. So that's why I say, you know, we're going to see some of these projects fail. This is almost inevitable. But the, the value will be that we've got actually some technology which we can record what happened and how it worked, you know. Um, and that will be immensely important when the collapse stage of, of our complex society starts to impact. So that may not be my lifetime, but it's certainly been yours, I should think. Robert has an awful lot to say about an awful lot. We think he's great. So we're going to be hearing more from him over the next few episodes. Robert and Ben have both, in slightly different ways, talked about how sharing knowledge and experience is important. And this is an idea we're really keen on at Panorama. As we mentioned at the start of the show, we'd like to hear as many voices as possible and give a feel for what's going on across the whole country. That means we want to hear your voice. So we have a little request or an opportunity. We'd like to invite people to send in short stories letting us know what you've been up to. It could be an explanation on how a new variety of plum is doing or a response to something you heard on the show or elsewhere or maybe simply just telling us how much you enjoy being outdoors. Basically a little news story from the farm out in the field we want to hear your experiences. We want to hear from all corners of the country. Just give us a feel for what, what's going on with you as part of this work you do. Um, it sounds somewhat daunting, but technology-wise, it really is easy enough to make a recording on your iPhone. If you've got something, then let us know, and we'll tell you where to send the files. We're also really happy to help with technical questions, uh, so... We can't wait to hear what you've been up to. Thank you so much for joining us on what has been the first episode of Farmerama. And so subscribe to the feed on iTunes to make sure you get all the episodes, all the future episodes. Okay, so just quick, you can find us on Facebook at Farmerama Radio. And then on Twitter and Instagram, our handle is at Farmarama underscore underscore. So that's two underscores, a really long line. <laughs> so once again, at Farmarama underscore underscore. We'd love to hear from you. Farmarama has been made by the three of us. Me, Abby Schlageter. Me, Nigel Akerst. And I'm Joe Barrett. We'd like to thank Zara Rahman for her feature on Seeds and our guests this episode... Ben Maskin and Robert Simpson. We'll leave you today with the sounds of Ben, this time singing us out with a traditional Irish folk song from the CSA event the other week. And champagne fine for communion wine. drinks it too. And with a sigh wing praise, forgive these men for they know what they do. Drink out the Frenchman's wine in the darkest night as a snug
much time. Oh, hey, we ran from the